Welcome to Center Points, the podcast of the Napoleon Center for Contemporary Media. I'm Jonathan Nichols Pethick, the director of the center, and my guest today is Professor Seth Friedman from the Department of Communication Theater at Paw University. He also teaches in the Film Studies program, and today we're going to talk about some uh, Academy Award stuff. Welcome, Seth. So it's it's getting to be Oscar season. It's award season. I was on the other night. I was like turning channels, and suddenly I came upon the SAG Awards. And of course, I just sat through the Golden Globe Awards and now the Academy Awards, of course, which have caused all sorts of controversy. And I don't think we're here to talk today about who's going to win or who has the best shot at this. Um, but really, we want to talk about um, sort of the function of these awards and, um, and, and sort of the cultural place of these awards. Um, so, I mean, I, but I think we could start in some ways, if you want to, with a uh, with a little bit of the a little bit of the controversy, right? So the big controversy, of course, is that Selma doesn't get a, doesn't get nominated for best director. It does get nominated for best picture. Um, none of the actors get nominated, um, and of course, there's some pretty big um, concerns about what this means. It did get that best original song nomination. It did get the best original song. I don't know that it's going to beat out everything is awesome, but uh, well, it shocked the world at the Golden Globes. So <laughs> That's true. Who knows? That's true. But aside from you know uh, maybe just misguided uh, notions of uh, what a best director is or a best actor is, um, you know, are there things that account for this this kind of snub, if you will, or this, this kind of overlooking what most people thought were kind of shoo-in candidates. Um, what are some ways to explain that that go beyond just there's a bunch of old white men? Well, certainly the, the clandestine nature of the voting process yeah. itself um, makes it difficult to ascertain why these things happen. Um, but, you know, we can certainly talk about an Oscar formula. Yeah. Right, that, you yeah. know, there are certain film genres, certain uh, times when films are set yeah. that are going to more position you for potential Academy Award and other award show yeah. notoriety. And it certainly seems like Selma would fit Selma into that fits right mold. Into that, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, because it is a biopic, which mm -hmm. is the undoubtedly a favorite of the Academy. Yeah. Uh, I think that it uh, has unfortunate timing because I think the Academy feels they've washed their hands of this after 12 Years a Slave the year before. Um, but, you know, for me it really comes down to, again, this whole clandestine process of Academy Award voting. I mean, I think Meryl Streep is nominated perpetually because my guess is that most of the voters don't watch all the films. And, you know, when in doubt, go with Meryl Streep. Uh, and from what I understand in, in regards to Selma, the, the screeners got out very late in the process. And so, therefore, it was uh, up against quite a bit of, uh, uh, quite a few obstacles in getting nominated. That would be the kind of giving the Academy the benefit of the doubt yeah. explanation. But, you know, when you think about timing of films, right, it's really kind of extraordinary that Boyhood has so much 
momentum because usually films that are released uh, early in the yearly calendar are at a severe disadvantage. There's a very precise window for Oscar bait films and Selma had a late release date and its screeners got out to the voting block late in the game. And so certainly that contributed at least partially to its snubbing. Yeah, I mean, so, so you raised the really important point about, you know, the, the Oscars serve a function, the Academy Awards serve a function that is, on the one hand, it's this big celebration of the art of filmmaking, but really what it is, it's the big lesson in the industry of filmmaking, right? I mean, there's a, it allows us to think about things like release windows and genre um, and how studios think of themselves um, as producing a certain kind of product for a particular purpose. I mean, there's no doubt that the Oscars have a uh, very significant financial impact on these films. Absolutely, and, and, and that's really the primary motive for them. Um, and you talk about release windows, and as ancillary markets, that is, uh, markets that extend beyond the theatrical release, so DVD, Blu-ray, on-demand, um, as those windows have been staggered, the Oscars are timed perfectly for the films that you know come out between the Thanksgiving and Christmas season that are always timed for uh, Oscar voters with short memories. Uh, and then the DVD release is right on the heels of, if not right before, the Academy Awards themselves. And you know, by all estimates, uh, the post-theatrical marketplace has more than doubled the theatrical take for since the mid-1980s. So um, clearly there is enormous economic incentives for films that generally are modestly budgeted in relation to other Hollywood films. Uh, these are, again, when we go back to genre, it's not the tentpole films, it's not the, the franchise hubs that are getting nominations beyond the technical categories, right? Sometimes uh, the action-packed blockbusters are um, nominated or even win awards in those categories, but they certainly don't win awards in the most prestigious categories. And so this gives Hollywood a, re a remarkable opportunity for a strong return on investment. Uh, because, you know, there, it's certainly true to say we are in the blockbuster age where this is the dominant mode of production. It's Hollywood's bread and butter because of the synergistic opportunities it provides to give Hollywood additional revenue streams beyond the box office. But it's not the only thing it's in the business of making. No. It's like any industry. It has a diverse portfolio. And certainly one of its primary modes of production is this kind of prestige film, if you, if you want to call it that, that gives the industry cachet and allows it to return handsomely on its more moderate investments. Yeah, I mean, it puts me in mind of the, the argument that Tom Schatz put forward, of, you know, these sort of, this model of three kinds of filmmaking, right? You have the big blockbusters at the top, the tentpole movies, the second tier being this, this studio-based art film, these independent, studio independents, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Indie wood. Indie Wood, right, the 
what used to be those those indie arms, um, which seem to be going away on some level, like Warner Vanguard and even Focus is starting to shift. Paramount Vantage and the yeah, and oh yeah yeah, uh, was it Warner Vanguard or was it anyway? Um, but yeah, so that and that seems to be the tier, as you said, that is really the Oscar bait tier, unless you get some sort of weird uh, anomaly like Titanic, right? Um, and that third tier, which was he called the truly independent films, the ones that aren't made through a studio, the ones that have to have to scramble for distribution, are really even further left out of the game by this this model of you know this Oscar bait. It's kind of kind of this guaranteed way of just completely uh, marginalizing what's truly an independent film that doesn't come with studio money. Yeah, I mean. The, the term independent film is incredibly vexed right now sure. anyway because since the fall of the studio system, Hollywood you know, has shifted its production lots primarily to, to television yeah. and has been more in the business of financing and distributing uh, films that are independently produced. I mean, that's what the shift to the package unit system means. We put together films on a one-off ad hoc basis, try and get as many uh, big names in that package as possible and then get the studios or more accurately the media conglomerates to, to back it. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Oscars are another way, as you put it here, to provide a barrier to entry, right? To, to keep the truly independent films out of the mix. And I guess that's what the Independent Spirit Awards were once about, but um, looking at the recent list of winners and nominees that has also been dominated by Indiewood, largely because Hollywood has so expertly branded part of its portfolio as independent film when it's anything but, you know, films like Little Miss Sunshine, Juno, these are studio films through and through. Um, so, I mean, this is really what the Academy Awards are about. They're about Hollywood's opportunity to further its own brand mm -hmm. and to further it in a way that keeps all other players out. <laughs> I mean, this is why it has one category devoted to the rest of world cinema, to non-English yeah. language yeah. speak. I mean, if it was really about uh, awarding the best artistic achievements in, in film, then I don't see why the categories would be so narrowly and rigidly constructed to exclude world cinema in the way it does. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, and so one of the questions I have then is, if we take a look at a film like Boyhood, which actually seems, I mean, Linklater has his indie cred intact in uh, for the most part. I mean, he's oscillated between yeah. independent and uh, more, um, studio style production yeah. and you know he's not the only one Steven Soderbergh others sure. have done this where they um, are able to fund their more artistically yeah. uh, products with more artistic integrity by making so this makes me wonder so because Linklater can can do both things he can play in both camps when he makes a film like Boyhood which does seem to have the markers of a of a kind of independent uh, not only a spirit but almost an independent funding where he goes through equity funding and, and gets this one backer to keep giving him this money over 12 years. Um, it's not a studio film in that regard. Um, is this instructive for how 
the Oscars or the Academy Awards work, or is this an anomaly that just kind of sits out there, or is this actually some something that we're talking about? Is this just another example? I, I think it is instructive because uh, you know you mentioned very early on, and something I didn't have an opportunity to respond to yet, like um, how a film like Selma can be up for Best Picture but not Best Director. Yeah. There seems to be a disconnect there if we in any way buy into traditional auteur theory that despite the incredibly collaborative nature of commercial filmmaking, especially a film like Boyhood that's 12 years in the making, um, that requires buy-in from an uh, enormous number of collaborators, that it's the director, despite this collaboration, who is uh, the artistic visionary. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whatever your beliefs on that issue are, I think that it's undeniable that since the fall of the studio system and the rise of the package unit, that that sentiment has taken on taken hold in the popular imagination. And it's in directors' best interest to position themselves as this kind of auteur mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how they market themselves. But there are important facets of the job itself, too, and that's being a talent broker. That's being a, you know, a product manager. Uh, and I think the lessons here more than anything else is Linklater's ability to create a brand for himself and to be able to pull off this incredibly uh, different mode of production. Uh, and I think he could only do that because of the indie cred he established um, prior to this, uh, prior to embarking on this, this production. I mean, it's not the first where he's dealing with the conception of time in this kind of way. Um, this bringing back the same actors again and again. So he had to establish that brand for himself. He had to establish really strong connections uh, in Hollywood with people like Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette who've worked with him before and willing to take this gamble. Um, so I, I, I think uh, it's perhaps a model of things to come, but it only helps incident, you know, interestingly to create these additional barriers to entry. Right? It's not any director who could pull this off with this kind of star power. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but he doesn't make Boyhood, it seems to me, without making before the Before series, right? He doesn't, he doesn't get a chance to do that because it's the same, it's, the, it's a similar idea, it's an expansion on an idea um, that has already proven itself to be, you know, really popular uh, or popular enough to be a re good return on investment. Yeah, and Hollywood likes him because he is able to make films like School of Rock. He's able to make films, even though it didn't do as well at the box office, like Bad News Bears, right? These more classically uh, constructed Hollywood films. And then when he does take his more experimental risks, like, you know, Slacker and later Waking Life, um, he does so in a very low budget. <laughs> and he does so in a way that uh, isn't going to raise any eyebrows if it, if it doesn't do well 
which most of them end up doing in the end after you take in all the ancillary markets anyway. Sure. Yeah, he's not making Titanic. He's not trying to break the bank right. uh, with a, with a one-off project. He's he's being very shrewd and mm -hmm. careful about what he's choosing. Yeah, that's when I that's why I mean it's really about brand management. You yeah. know, it's about establishing uh, authorial signature that is somehow able to be marketed as distinct, proving that you can stay within budget and shoot films in a timely fashion, right? I mean, I know this is a 12-year production, but they they did it three or four days a year for those 12 yeah. years, right? So um, it's not it's it it's not like anything incredibly different than we've been seeing in Hollywood for for a long time. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I mean, as experimental a movie in terms of production that it is, and it's an excellent film, it's not so far outside of the realm of of standard Hollywood narrative. Yeah, it's still single protagonist driven yeah. quest narrative yeah. stuff. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, when we were gearing up to talk, you said something, you, you mentioned one of the things that would be interesting to talk about was um, the relationship between the Academy Awards and the idea of film performance. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're thinking there. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked a little about Best Director, and mm -hmm. it, you know, that's the particular award I'm most interested yeah. in uh, because I do think that, though not always the case, it is uh, quite often the director who has the most artistic clout um, on a film set. But obviously, that's not what the Academy itself values the most. The best picture goes to the producer, not the director, um, which tells you everything you need to know about what Hollywood cares about, and that's the business side of it, yeah. the, the profit motive. Uh, but what the general po population seems to care most about are the acting awards. The best actor, the best actress, and the best supporting actor, and the best supporting actress. Uh, that certainly gets the most attention, and um, Hollywood also likes that that gets that much attention, because uh, once somebody's nominated, it, it makes them that much more profitable down the line, right? They become a, a pre-sold property that can always be packaged as Academy Award nominee or Academy Award winner. Um, so that's why Hollywood doesn't mind it getting this much attention too. But I've always found it very difficult to quantify film performance. Um, again, if, if you believe that the director who ultimately is the one who is deciding uh, how many takes we need to get it right or um, may even have final cut. Uh, it's, it's hard to think about the, the screen actor as really having a lot of creative clout in a lot of these circumstances. Um, it's, it's different than theatrical stage performance where there's a live co-presence. I mean, obviously that can be manipulated by a director in certain ways. Yeah. It can be manipulated by other members of the technical crew, lighting and mise-en-scene, these things matter in the theater too, but you can't deny yeah. that performance unfolding in front of you as it's occurring. Yeah. It's like going to a live music show. Certainly there's lip syncing and all, all kinds of things, mm -hmm. but when you see a great performance unfolding, you see it and you, and you say you, you had to be there. Mm -hmm. It's very different for mechanically reproduced performance. 
where there could be tons of takes. Well, and, and within a scene, an editor and, and director, if they're working together, are putting together a performance from disparate takes. So, you know, you might have the reaction shot from take four, cut away, the next three lines is from take seven. Yeah, even more, even more uh, crazy in this regard is it could be take one from when we started the production and then the next line is six months later when we decided to reshoot. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not saying there isn't uh, a talent that's required for film performance. Oh, there is. You, you know, you have to be able to get into character every day regardless of what's going on in your life or regardless of what's going on in the set. Um, and you might have to do that six months later again. But we don't see that. It, it, we, we don't see that as the, as the viewer of a film. But the illusion of it being continuous yeah. is there. And that's not as much a product of the actor as it is a product of all the people involved in post-production. Yeah. So th again, there is important talents of Hollywood film performance. Um, of course, the crew wants them to get it right as quickly as possible. They yeah. want to stay on budget, they want to stay on schedule. Yeah. Uh, and to be able to pull it off as quickly as possible at any time during the shoot mm -hmm. is an art form. Yeah. But that's not what we see. No. And so we know what's traditionally valued by the Academy. I'm not uh, telling people anything they don't know. Right? If you somehow deglamorize yourself or you somehow wear a prosthetic convincingly, or you, you know, like Steve Carell, this, this time in Foxcatcher. If you play somebody with a disability, right? All of these things are part of this Oscar bait formula. But when we talk about things like prosthetics or deglamorizing, right? you, you realize how much that's the crew versus the performer, right? the makeup or the, the lighting or the costuming, right? How all these things are contributing to the way that a performance is valued and then the millions of dollars the winner is going to be able to parlay that into subsequently. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, this is a strange leap, but it reminds me of um, Singing in the Rain and how in some ways <laughs> how crazy that movie is in, in the way that it simultaneously highlights the construction of the image and yet still becomes a story about unified performance. Yeah, that's why it's a favorite of film scholars. I mean, yeah. it's this kind of backstage musical where you see what kind of construction Lena Lamont is and can't make yeah. the transition from silent to sound. And is, as you're saying, a testament to this sort of construction of the star. Yeah. And I've only talked about the construction of the star within the text itself. Obviously, yeah. Hollywood star system is more about extra-textual discourses than it is about what's in the text itself, right? the kind of off-screen persona that this, yeah. this star is able to uh, cultivate and have cultivated for him or her. Uh, and again, this, the whole star system, it's obviously what Hollywood values the most. Stars make the most money, yeah. and, that, and that's all you need to know to know what Hollywood values. 
And the reason it values it so most is because of the barrier to entry that it provides. If you are an independent filmmaker hoping to get distribution, the best thing you can do is get some kind of star attached to your product. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, only so many people can afford actors at $25 million for a few months' work. Uh, so, um, you know, this is why Hollywood has invested so much in the star system. It, it copied it from the theatrical stage. Um, and it's why it has no problem with its viewers continuing to value on-screen performance more than any of the awards, even though I hope I've just explained why maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> Another thing that comes to mind are these other categories of, of, of filmmaking that seem to, that the Academy delves into, given their, their, in, their significant investment into um, a certain kind of film performance, a certain kind of in industrial structure. They also invest in these other forms that don't have a lot of return on investment that really do seem to be a kind of patting on the back. So when they award documentary and when they award the short documentary especially, right? Um, you know, what are we to make of that? There, there, there's, I mean, is, is this still a market-driven thing or is this really about creating a kind of ideological perspective or a cultural sense of what the Acad that the Academy Awards really is about art. Yeah, uh, I think I think you're onto it in, in your question um, because it's important for Hollywood to maintain the patina of art. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's a industry and its profits its primary motive. Uh, it's not its only motive, but it's far and away its primary sure. motive. Uh, and oftentimes, these other um, modes of expression, cinematic expression, that it includes in its uh, list of awards. So we've already talked a little bit about the best non-English language film, because yeah. I guess <laughs> Australians, New Zealands, and <laughs> non-French speaking Canadians and Brits are, are part of this other category. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, international art cinema is certainly distinct from classical Hollywood. Yeah. This is one of David Bordwell's major arguments that uh, part of the way that it is distinct is how it rejects many of Hollywood's conventions. Um, but, you know, how to explain things like documentary or the short or the other awards? Well, I think there's a few ways. Number one, in certain circumstances, this is not the norm, it can become a kind of training ground for people who want to make a transition to Hollywood. And, and you've seen that this year. James Marsh, who's Man on Wire, yes. uh, I thought was a fantastic documentary film, in part because of how well it blended fiction and nonfiction mm -hmm. seamlessly. Is, you know, his, his film, The Theory of Everything, which is a Stephen Hawking biopic, is now uh, highly decorated in terms of nominations for fiction films. So it often can be a way to create these sort of future branded commodities. And you'll notice that a lot of the documentaries that do particularly well are the ones that are the least innovative and actually align most closely with the classical Hollywood mode of narration. Mm -hmm. uh, when you take a look at filmmakers like Michael Moore, who makes himself the protagonist in his films yes. and yeah. has this kind of quest narrative, you 
you can know, you can see how even documentaries are often awarded based on how closely they align with the, the classical Hollywood mode of narration. Uh, and it's not surprising because the voters are the ones who wor are working in the Hollywood industry who, who value that mode of production over everything else. Um, but I, I think the biggest reason that Hollywood wants to keep the patina of art is because of regulation. Um, Hollywood has remarkably been able to sustain self-censorship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, other mass media industries are not as fortunate. No. Uh, commercial American television, you know, excluding the, the premium cable channels is subject to FCC regulation. Sure, sure. Um, Hollywood is not. No. And there's been many times in its history when the threat of government intervention has reared its head, most notably in the, in the 1920s on the heels of the Fatty Arbuckle scandal yeah. and all these other things when the Hayes Code was written to yeah. prevent government intervention. So if Hollywood comes off as what it really is, and that's crass commercialism, profit over everything else, you're going to have more likelihood of government intervention. Well, because so in 1915 it was deemed they did not have First Amendment rights because they were business pure and simple. And now, and then in what it's 52, 52 they yeah. get that First Amendment reversed, protection. Yeah. Largely on the grounds that they trade in art. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a way in which, even though that's probably far from a lot of people's minds, the basic ideological structure is we, are, we have always been an industry under threat. Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. And, uh, you know, so. Those awards come on, documentary short. Nobody wants to see them. No. Nobody knows the people being nominated because they're not these branded commodities yeah. yet, except in rare instances. And you have a Michael Moore yeah. who has established an authorial pers persona in, in documentary. They always cut those acceptance speeches short. Yeah, they, they always hear the orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always early in the show. Yeah. Um, you know, to make sure that West Coast viewers and others can tune in for the most important awards. Yeah. I mean, they, they tease us with the supporting yeah. awards first, and then they get into all the technical achievements and these other modes of cinematic production that are more closely aligned with actual artistic integrity. Um, and then when it's time for the most important advertisers to be pleased is when they do the awards that are the most prestigious and, and cared about. So what you're telling me is you're not surprised that Godard does not get nominated for Best Picture, even though National Film Critics voted it the Best Picture of the Year. It was one of the best films I saw this yeah. year. And it, it's unfortunate um, that it has to be seen in 3D to yeah. be appreciated, because part of what he's doing in Goodbye to Language 3D is testing what you can actually do with this technology. You know, th there's people when I was at the screening who thought it was broken because um, he uses some really interesting superimpositions and whatnot to, to see what we can actually do with the form itself. And Hollywood is not about seeing what we can do about the form itself. Yeah. It's about the classical Hollywood mode of production. It's about who can tell the best story in the Hollywood formula. Uh, and Goodbye to Language has a narrative, but it's not exactly one that is easy to follow, and it's certainly not 
classically driven or constructed. Um, and it doesn't qualify because it's not an English language film, yeah. so it would have to be in the best non-English language film category. Um, but no, it's not surprising in the least, even though it's directed by an 84-year-old legend who is still pushing the envelope on what the medium itself can do. Yeah. Well, as always, I have learned an enormous amount just talking to you, so thank you. Well, I'm flattered, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. All right, my pleasure. My guest today has been uh, Professor Seth Friedman, who teaches in the Communication and Theater and Film Studies programs here at DePaul University. This has been Center Points.